Welcome to the Codcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine. Vineyard Wind, the nation's first commercial scale offshore wind farm, announced last week that it has wrapped up financing for the $3 billion project and is moving into the construction phase. In Washington and here in Massachusetts, that's good news. President Biden and Governor Charlie Baker are counting on offshore wind to help reduce the nation's reliance on fossil fuels and put the country on a trajectory to start dealing with climate change. But not everyone is jumping for joy. A handful of lawsuits have been filed objecting to the way the wind farm was approved. One claims regulators failed to protect endangered North Atlantic right whales. Another warns that the enormously tall turbine blades are an environmental disaster in the making because they won't be able to withstand hurricane force winds. And the most recent lawsuit is being filed by the Responsible Offshore Development Alliance in Washington, D.C., whose executive director, Annie Hawkins, is with us today. Thank you for joining us, Annie. Thanks for having me. Why don't you first explain what the alliance is and what it does? Sure. So, so our alliance, which goes by the acronym RODA, um, we're a national fishing industry coalition. We've got about 200 members across the country who um, <laughs> represent various um, businesses within the seafood production sector. So everything from harvesters and, and fishing vessels to processing companies and uh, support services and everything in between. So in announcing that your plan to file a lawsuit against the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, you criticize Vineyard Wind's hasty approval. What do you mean by that? Because most people think it's taken forever to get this project approved, and you're calling it a hasty approval. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's funny. This is one, one of the big divisions we see. Certainly, I've, I've spoken to enough wind developers and um, folks that work in the offshore wind sector who feel that these projects just take forever and, and wallow in permitting for, you know, a, a decade or possibly more. But um, from the fishing industry perspective, they really weren't considered and in, included in any meaningful way until very, very late in the process. And so coming from that perspective where they've been trying to get a seat at the table and trying to put their input into the project and be co-planners co-designers and really look for solutions to improve offshore winds compatibility with commercial fishing. That was never even considered by the federal government until the very late stages of the project. Um, and then there's a, a second element there, which is that, you know, late last year, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management actually announced that it had terminated the environmental review for this project. Um, and so the way that was canceled and then not only taken off a shelf or reinitiated, but jumped straight to final approval was very, very fast. It was within days of the incoming administration. So that's a key point, I, I assume, is that under the President Trump, this was uh, sort of meandering along. No one really knew when it would be resolved, I guess. And then Biden came in and snapped your fingers. It, it was done pretty quick. Yeah, I, you know, I... I I see it a little bit differently than that. I mean, I think the word meandering might, might be a bit strong. I mean, there was a process to follow, right? And the process was being followed. And um, even at the time, everyone would say, you know, oh, we're building the airplane as we're flying it or we're testing the regulations as we go. And, and I don't mean everyone 
from the fishing perspective, I mean everyone, you know, from the offshore wind community. Um, and so if you're if you're putting out messaging saying we're 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 testing the regulations and making sure this works as we go, then yeah, things are going to change along the way. Um, but you know, there was a lot of sentiment that the project had been delayed for this um, supplemental environmental review that the last administration conducted. And now that was very, very clear from a legally from a legal perspective um, that that had to be completed for the project to move forward. And so we didn't, you know, having been closely in, involved in that process and, and been working on this the whole time, it it was us that didn't look anything like a, uh, you know, like a stone wall. It, it was moving forward. It was just, you know, the process was was sort of creating itself as it went. So. If you can summarize for our listeners, not every concern, but what are your chief concerns about Vineyard Wind as it's currently designed and approved? Sure. So, you know, as a as a national association and as an umbrella association that represents a whole lot of different fisheries, um, we obviously have concerns with Vineyard Wind, but but also with essentially all of the projects that that are being planned and permitted on these coasts. The, the concern really is has two factors. One is with the process overall that the government is taking to review these projects, the level of regulatory oversight and balancing of different public use interests that's actually occurring here, which is pretty minimal. I mean, there's a very, very large power imbalance, right, between the multinational energy companies that are putting forth offshore wind and our historic and traditional fishing communities. Um, and so it's, you know, there's there's a conflict with sort of that that power and that balancing And then, of course, the other element here being the environmental concerns. Um, It is very important to take action to mitigate climate change uh, and to do that quickly without a doubt. But in taking action to address climate change, we have to acknowledge that these new uses have a lot of environmental uncertainty. They have a lot of impacts of their own um, that can be better understood and minimized before we go kind of whole hog on this, you know, 30 gigawatts tomorrow. I think that a lot more upfront due diligence needs to be done so that as we start to rush to address climate change, we can do that in a really informed and, and diligent way. So, but is there, a, I guess when I'm, you know, you and I have talked in the past about the distance between turbines and and sort of getting out to fishing areas and, and you know, the fish themselves, what this might impact might be on them. Are, are some of those the chief concerns or, or is your concern mostly about the, I assume there's a process question, but there is also a fundamental issue here, right? Yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, and, and there's a lot of those, right? We, this is, this could be a very long podcast if we went into sort of all of the ways in which, um, you know, this project and, and these other offshore wind projects interfere with fishing and the, the fact that there is a, a range of alternatives that could minimize those, right? And that hasn't been done here. But but some of those things include, um, you know, safe navigation and transit. Um, the fishing communities have been asking for many, many years um, to include reasonable transit lanes through these project areas, particularly because you are looking at 1,400 square miles of offshore wind projects that are contiguous, right, off of New England. Um, and people have to transit through there. And so they've been very clear in saying this is what it would take for us to do that safely not to even fish within the area, but just to get through and still be able to access fishing grounds elsewhere. Um, You know, after years of development and collaboration and and science and, um, 
everything to go into those recommendations, those recommendations were never taken seriously at all. Um, so, you know, safety transit, there's a whole category of issues within that bucket. Then there's the actual impacts of the fish stocks themselves and how little is known about that. Um, the quality of research that we're doing right now and the quality of research, frankly, that they're doing in Europe on the existing projects to understand what those are and to understand what species may be particularly sensitive, um, what may be negatively impacted, some that could be positively impacted, but understanding what those are and then designing projects in a way that, again, you're minimizing those impacts. That hasn't happened here, um, nor have we ever taken a step back and looked very holistically at the, this entire offshore wind leasing program, right? These cumulative impacts of, of all of these projects, um, looking at them versus other energy strategies, looking at them versus, you know, cost, um, the supply chain issues involved with it, you know, that's really never been done. So um, I, I think there's a, this, these lawsuits and your concerns reflect a, a really interesting national debate that's going on because it seems like the country is now rushing to, to try and deal with climate change and offshore wind is one way to do that. Um, and what I hear you and other groups that are raising concerns about this process saying is that, yes, we want to do that and we want to do it as fast as possible, but without sacrificing the fishing industry or the fish, fish themselves and all that stuff. So it's, a, it's an incredible... Um, it's an incredible environmental debate about the future of our country in a, in a lot of ways. And I guess the courts are the place where this will be decided. Is that what you're betting on? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I, I think it is an incredible debate. It's incredibly complicated. It's, it's challenging. I mean, none of us want to be having these debates about these trade-offs. I mean, I, well, we do because we're doing it, but you, it, what I'm saying is it would be wonderful if there was a silver bullet that we could just say, yeah, let's go in all, all in on this. And that's going to um, re really help us to address climate change. But, you know, for all of the progress we've made on sustainable fisheries management and seafood production and biodiversity and ocean ecosystem health and all these things that have always been so important to us you know, we're really throwing those by the wayside to just say, okay, but climate, climate's really, really, really important, but there's a lot of environmental issues that are also important. It's not like, you know, a few months or a year or looking at adjustments to these projects is going to be the make it or break it, frankly, for, you know, for the climate issue. And, and so we should be doing this, but we should be doing it in a really informed way. Um, well, we should be taking action for climate change. I mean, I, I think there are questions about the level and extent to which offshore wind should be part of that portfolio. Um, we just haven't done it. And, you know, we, we really, to, to me, the messaging is very, ha has a lot of dissonance in it because what we're looking at very, very big multinational energy companies that in other spheres and in other things, we would say, oh, well, you know, they're just not, really credible for, for protecting the public interest here, right? They're the ones that own these projects. I'm not saying that that none of them have, you know, done any work to try to work with local communities they have, but, you know, there's this sentiment of just completely leaving it on them to solve these problems that in a lot of cases, in, in almost all cases, these exact same companies create it through climate change. And so what we're simply saying is that the, the government needs to, can and, and has to, provide that level 
of unbiased oversight and regulate these projects and regulate these companies in the way that you would any other large energy project or large infrastructure project. And even at a basic level with, with these projects, that hasn't been done. So it's interesting here in Massachusetts, the, in the political environment here, uh, the perception by our congressional delegation was that the Trump administration was dragging its feet on offshore wind and refused. And this, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think I'm characterizing it accurately. Our congressional delegation was suggesting that it was a slow walk to nowhere that Trump was doing on offshore wind. Biden comes in, the whole the whole momentum changes fairly quickly. Uh, I don't think he's made any secret of that. Um, so almost more than these offshore wind companies, uh, the federal government has done a total flip around, it seems to me. Hasn't yeah, it? I, I mean, you know, from my perspective, this, this is sort of me, me personally, not even on behalf of the organization, but, you know, this shouldn't be so political. <laughs> you know, this, of course, it's it's really kind of, I know, I, I know it's kind of naive to say that, but, you know, this is an environmental issue. This is an energy issue. This is an issue about our, our communities and equity in our future, all that kind of stuff. It should have a lot more regularity in it, right? It, this shouldn't be something where everyone's constantly waiting to see what happens next. And, oh, well, you know, could it be this way or could it be that way? We, we really need to have a, a set process here that makes sense. But I also think that, um, you know, there is a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of resources being invested in PR and all this. And I think that was an easy talking point. Um, but, you know, the, the last lease auction um, that went forward off of New England, that was in the Trump administration. I mean, they, they were moving forward, right? They were leasing areas. They were processing the permits. They were having all sorts of meeting. I mean, we started Rhoda in 2018 largely to work on offshore wind. Wouldn't have done that if it wasn't moving forward, right? We wouldn't have needed a voice for the fishing industry. So I, I think it's, um, certainly we know that it's been accelerated a lot recently. I think the consistency and messaging about the supply chains and about the um, scale and pace of offshore wind, getting more consistency, and that would be actually incredibly helpful for understanding how we're gonna do this. What, what is the scale we're looking at and what can the ecosystem support? What are going to be the, the effects for climate change? Or, you know, presumably the positive effects for climate change. What are gonna be the effects of the grid, all of this stuff. And instead we're just doing this total piecemeal, he said, she said, and it's, it's just not working. And tell me about your interactions with the Biden administration on this issue. Um, uh, are they, do you get a sense that the folks there are willing to listen, to try and work this out? Or are they just saying, we want to push ahead as fast as we can? So they're, they're saying that they're willing to listen um, and they are meeting with, you know, with fishing groups. And I think that's all really positive. Um, we have not seen anything that I could put my finger on and say, you know, this has changed or that's changed or we have, you know, we have any indication of what they'll actually do to to take a better approach here, right? Um, right now, it's all in the very much in the conversation phase, but it's also in the accelerate offshore wind phase. And hey, you know, maybe these projects, all the ones that are currently in the pipeline, it's kind of too late to change anything in those or to really change anything substantive in those. So let's talk about the projects ten years from now. Well, why are we talking about the projects that are coming ten years from now? 
when the fishermen have been at the table from day one for more than 10 years, it's this like hurry up and wait, right? Oh, well, you know, it's taking so long to permit these projects, but there's no time in the process that anybody can look at the fishing industry and say, that's the time. That's the time that your input's gonna matter. That's the time that we can look at alternatives that, that might be better for both uses. Um, and we're hearing this um, uh, in, in, from various groups now. Um, as I said in the opening, the a group of Nantucket residents backed by some other groups up and down the coast are raising concerns about North Atlantic right whales and how um, you know, the development of this industry could dramatically impact their already diminishing numbers. Um, yeah, it, it sort of feels like as someone not in the fight, it sort of feels like, oh my God, we're now going into the court process, which tends to drag on for some time. Uh, and it, it's probably not the best way to negotiate an end to this, it's, but it's only a way to sort of put the brakes on. It sounds, sounds like, what do you think? I'll be honest with you. It's, it's not the best way to negotiate then to this. I mean, you know, working in sort of natural resource policy, the, the common adage is that, you know, the courts are, are the worst place to make these decisions because the, the judges are the least informed, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the experts. Um, but that said, when the experts don't do their jobs, you have no recourse, right? Um, the best place to negotiate this would have been all along throughout the permitting process. But since that didn't happen, here we are. Um, you know, the right whales are a particularly interesting issue because the, this area, the Vineyard Wind Project area in particular, was leased, you know, 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a ton of right whale activity in the area. And it's really since that those that lease and the ones around it were issued that the right whales have started to really congregate within the wind energy areas, particularly in the last year or two. Um, this absolutely raises the question with offshore wind of how can we adaptively manage when things do change, right? And this is a huge question we have for fishing too. I mean, obviously if you're the developer and, and the way the federal regulations work, they're not gonna let you just move the project because the, the whales are there now, right? But, but what do we do when we see that in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of changes within the right whale population. Um, you know, they're obviously in incredibly bad shape at the moment and there they are in the lease area and, and what do you do? Um, our oceans have always been managed in a dynamic way because essentially all ocean activities, at least you know, in New England, are, are dynamic, they move. Now we're looking at overlaying a static development that has never been there before. And it creates all sorts of management complications and really, really hard questions like this one. I mean, with fisheries or, or with whales, if something changes, then you move the regulations, right? You, you move the zoning can't do that once turbines are in the water. And so how do we address all these things? They're very, very challenging questions. It, sort of last question here. What is your time frame, or how do you see this working out? Um, is it something that will be resolved in the next year or is this gonna drag on for some time? I, I don't pretend to know the, the court's timelines, right? I, I, that, I, I'm honestly couldn't even guess on that one for, for our specific suit here, um, we as an organization and fishermen as, as an industry and as, um, you know, the course of doing their business are in this for the long haul. I mean, these are 30 year projects. So to us, this is a constant process of refinement and improvement um, and being here and being better included and having fishermen's ecological knowledge better included 
this specific case, I don't know for sure, um, but organizationally, we're looking at the entire leasing program, and that is certainly going to be here for a long, you know, for, for all of our lifetimes, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much, Annie Hawkins, the Executive Director of the Responsible Offshore Development Alliance. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you.